Welcome to the planevents.ca podcast. It's May 13, 2020, and this is episode 13. I'm Kamran, your host, and today our guest is Hari from Maharaja Turbans and Swords. We had him on as a guest uh, many, well, this is episode 13, so multiple episodes ago, and we had a chance to talk about his craft around turban tying, not, not just typical turban tying, but really um, well-crafted turbans uh, of a variety of types. And we didn't get a chance to talk about the swords he also makes. So today, we're going to focus on swords, talk about both the brief history of how he got into it, but also want to pick his brain on the history of some of these swords, uh, talk about some stories, uh, the significance of the swords, the art behind sword making, and also his thoughts and views around the, the uh, future of fashion for grooms. So with that said, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, Hari, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm Hari from Maharaja Pagri. Uh, we also do swords, so Maharaja Pagri and swords. Thank you to uh, Karman and Nav for having me on the uh, podcast here, Plan Events. Um, so how we got into this. Basically, we got into this the same way I got into turbans, which was that I wanted a different style to tie for my wedding. Um, and nobody here really did that style properly. So what I ended up doing was when I went shopping in India, I ended up learning how to do it there. Uh, coming back and then on my wedding day, did my own and 10 groomsmen, 10 family members. And then I kind of just took it from there thinking like, well, if I wanted it, then probably other people want this, you know, different kind of style as well. Um, and a few different options outside of the usual box. So that's how I got into that. And that's pretty much the same as how I got into swords is that I wanted one for my wedding, wasn't able to find one here, kind of just did a makeshift with the, um, you know, something that I found on Amazon that I painted and stuff like that, but very Anglo-Saxon European type. So it wasn't really the traditional um, sword that I was looking for. Uh, so I ended up doing a lot of research and travel to kind of find the source of the good stuff uh, in India. And then now I'm supplying it here too. Awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about what the customer journey was like as a groom before you got into this, when you were looking for a sword? Like, where did you look locally in BC? Not any like particular stores, but like what kind of places did you look into? And why didn't you like your options? Right. Um, so I looked into a few different places, um, you know, obviously the usual kind of groom shops, bride and groom shops. Um, and initially what I found was that all they had were fake swords. So essentially these kind of like fabric and sequin wrapped butter knife type things, um, that were, you know, they look like their swords from afar when you look at it up close a it can you can snap it like a twig um and b they are not real at all or have any kind of beauty to them in my opinion um so my next step then was to think about it in a more 
cultural kind of religious way. I was like, okay, well, we have a pretty large Sikh community here. Um, so I'm sure that, you know, more of the traditional uh, areas of Surrey would have something um, that is more catered towards them. And same story there. They didn't really have anything going on either. Um, and then I took on to online to try to find something there. Uh, and all I could find was real antiques um, that were, A, you know, in bad shape when you look at it as part of a, you know, new, fresh ensemble. But, uh, of course, they had their value and stuff in, you know, in museums and, and collections and stuff like that. But uh, the prices were just way too high because most of these were like 100, 200, 300 years old. Um, and I just wasn't you know, willing to pay that high of an amount for something that I wanted to use for just a day kind of a thing because um, I wanted something to look better um, at the end of it. So what ended up happening was I went to Amazon and bought a sword um, that's actually a replica of the main sword from Lord of the Rings. And I bought that and I bought some gold plasti dip I don't know if everybody knows what Plasti Dip is. Basically, it's a spray paint that sprays on, and then it it can peel off like a you know like a peel. Um, so I bought some of that, and then I sprayed that, uh, sprayed all the black, basically all the metal part, into gold, um, and then wrapped some fabric around it. But it was still pretty, you know, Anglo-Saxon looking. I did use the same cloth that I you know had in my outfit, so it did tie together. But um, it wasn't really what I was looking for at the end of the day. And uh, there are multiple reasons for why I was looking for something else, which we'll you know, go into more detail as we go on throughout this conversation. Okay. You mentioned um, you had gone to India, to, or it sounded like you went to India, and a part of that, call it journey, was uh, trying to figure out what a genuine sword um, uh, we can say what kind of variations of swords are in India. What, what part of India did you go to? What was that experience like? Right. So um, it was kind of the same story in India, you know, everywhere that I knew to go to were bride and groom kind of places. Um, in terms of the states that I went to, um, most of our shopping was done in Jaipur and Rajasthan, um, which is which literally means the state of kings. So it's... Um, you know, the state itself founded by warriors um, and, of course, would be the place that you would think that you would find this kind of stuff. Um, now I know where in Jaipur to look after becoming the supplier, but um, it's not something that, you know, people usually kind of um, are interested in, the general population. And so it was kind of slow to come out. Um, and so in all the places that I went, I didn't find it. Okay. So, yeah. so, so you actually didn't, you didn't actually find a place in India. You, you, did you have to kind of innovate on your own? Uh, at that time? Yeah. So that was my, that was my pre-wedding trip. Um, and then in terms of finding it, uh, finding the suppliers and, and makers and stuff like that, that all happened after I got married and I went and like, you know, did more research into where I can find these guys and made connections in the industry here locally who were able to guide me also in that um, direction. And then is when I went uh, just last year, early last year in January, 
is when I went in and actually found the proper sources of everything. Got it. Yeah. And this is kind of off topic, but I, I, you know, I personally don't know a lot of people that um, go to India specifically to Rajasthan. Or do you, your your background, it's like, are one or both of your parents from Rajasthan? Um, so my mom is Gujarati, and my dad is from Uttar Pradesh. So neither side is from Rajasthan. But the reason we went to Rajasthan was because the look that we were going for, it was mostly clothes, like clothes related shopping. Um, so the looks that we were going for were uh, regal, like Maharaja type, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, and so the reason we went there was because it has more influence in that part um, of India. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So um, now today, I guess, uh, do you still get... Do you still kind of source your, let's call it like the raw version of the sword? Do you still get it from uh, places that require you to have a basis in Anglo-Saxon uh, European swords? Or are you able to now have a, uh, a base or raw sword that's Indian in nature to start with? So all my swords are completely handmade, like deep in the villages uh, in Punjab by generational um artisans that um like blacksmiths that have been doing this uh for generations um and you know they've kind of passed the knowledge down from generation to generation and so when you buy or rent any of my swords then you're you know also all helping the source and the source of course is these families that have dedicated their lives to um basically the preservation of what is your cultural heritage, you as in the bride and groom. And are they sharp? <laughs> are they are they dull, typically? I mean, I assume dull because you're not going to war with these, plus safety precautions. Well, um, there I have both, <laughs> but uh, I generally prefer to get them sharp um, just because the significance behind the sword itself uh, it should be sharp. So, so why not? Yeah, go for it. Um, so I'll start, I guess I'll go into a little bit of the history of like why the sword is even part of the wedding ceremony itself in general. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly okay. what we're looking for. So basically, uh, back in the day, um, the way now this is in general throughout India is that um, the wedding itself would take place at the village um, of the bride. Um, so in most places in India, it was not so common to marry someone from, uh, you know, your own village or town. Um, generally, you would go outside of the town to kind of keep bloodline separate and stuff like that. And so what would happen is the wedding takes place at the town of the bride. And so the groom's party goes there in the Bharat. Um, and then after the wedding, the doli comes back. And so what would happen there for the doli is uh, what carries kind of this like little carting that carries the bride. And so the reason for the sword was because obviously Mary... Weddings are a lavish affair, a um, lot of, you know, jewelry and stuff like that going on, uh, you know, kind of riches and stuff like that for the most part. Like uh, the mother of the bride gives her a lot of her 
you know, real gold jewelry and the um, uh, mother-in-law also has gifts for her in that regard and everybody wears um, their gold jewelry and stuff when they go. And so when they're coming back, there's essentially quite a bit of gold in the wedding party itself. And so the the pre-kind of modern era tradition was that you would be armed uh, in order to protect the wedding party from attackers or looters because that was a pretty common thing that would take place um, in between the villages, in the jungles and stuff like that. Sometimes a bride would even get kidnapped, like personally kidnapped, and, um, and then kind of held for a ransom, which is why it was important for the groom himself to also have his own sword so he could uh, defend her. So now this is outside, like this is in general, um, outside of Sikhism. Uh, but in Sikhism, uh, men and women are given uh, completely equal footing on everything according to um, the grant, according to the traditions and according to the uh, religious code itself. And so according to that, the women should also be armed. And so um, this you know, is kind of a practice that continued. Uh, an interesting story, actually, that I want to bring up that happened um, in 1930. So this is, I'm just going to read a story from um, someone named Lakpreet Kaur. So she shared a story about her dadiji, um, so her mom's, or her dad's mom, and her wedding, and the danger that they faced on the way back from the wedding. So she says, my dadiji Ratan Kaur got married in the late 90s in rural Punjab. Uh, she was Amritari and so always Amritari means like you're kind of initiated into uh, and have taken the vows of the Sikh faith. And so she always had her karpan on her. So after her Anandkarj, which is the name for the Sikh wedding, the wedding party traveled about seven miles from her village to her husband's village. And though it was a short distance, the narrow trail was rugged, overgrown, and wild. The trail had developed a reputation of being dangerous, and stories of people being attacked during their journeys had spread to the surrounding villages. So the Doli had been walking for quite a while uh, when one of the so Doli carriers, so by this it's evident that she was actually being carried in like by uh, men who were carrying the actual Doli, as opposed to a cart, uh, said he wanted to stop in a particular spot for a break. So knowing that stopping would leave the group vulnerable to attack, Maidadi expressed her concern. And the disagreement between her and the Doli carrier escalated to Maidadi actually drawing her karpan and declaring, if you stop, then I will slay you right here, right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So pretty insane. So she was uh, quite brave. Um, and so, of course, the Doli carrier did not want to die. And so he picked up the Doli and they continued and they reached the uh, husband's village safely. So in retrospect, they, when her daddy thought about it, um, she said that it's, she was happy that she did that because a few weeks later, her brother... Uh, was attacked by a band of criminals in that exact same location that the Doli carrier 
who wanted to stop wanted to stop. Wow. And those guys tried to mug her brother. And uh, he drew his sword and fought them off. And, uh, you know, he still had a large gash on his shoulder and stuff. But it just kind of goes to show that it was probably likely that the Dolly Carrier was kind of in on it with the, um, with the criminals there. So it was good that she was armed and able to defend herself. So that kind of leads me into my, into segues into my next point, which is like the significance of it in, uh, as in the Karpan or the sword in Sikhism itself, which is the main um, kind of uh, cultural religion that uses swords in their weddings. Um, so we'll start off with a bit of like an overview of um, the Sikh wedding, which is called an Anand Karaj. Um, Anand, as you probably, most people know, means happy, uh, bliss. So an Anand Karaj is a sacred, happy union. And it signifies actually towards the end of it, like the you, you'll see as the ceremony continues. And the point of it is that two bodies are sharing one soul. Um and originally, the Anand Karaj was obviously designed for to be between two Sikhs. But now it is done even if one of the two people is not Sikh, uh, which means one of them is. Now, what does that mean for people in general? Now, it, of course, if you're having an Anand Karaj and you think, okay, well, you know, I'm not an Amritari person, I'm not... Uh, you know, super religious. I just kind of am doing this because, you know, that's how my parents got married. That's how my grandparents got married. And that's how they want me to get married. But what you have to understand is that it is, regardless, a sacred ceremony that's taking place. You are choosing to have that ceremony because you don't have to have it. Legally, you can just be married by, you know, getting some going to city hall or going to a courthouse or whatever and getting married there but by the fact that you are as a bride or groom or both choosing to have an anand courage it means that you are also committing to the ideals that are meant to be established within that ceremony so um if you choose to do that then that ceremony then at least for the ceremony if not for your life you should follow the ideals that it represents. So what are those ideals? And this is an interesting little um, tidbit from the Guru Granth Sahib um, that says, uh, the translation of which is, as sharp as the edge of a sword and finer than a strand of hair, that is the path a Sikh of the Guru is to walk. So even if you are not walking that path throughout your life it is definitely important that you walk it in the ceremony um as you know like the ceremony itself even has the four the lava which is the kind of the walking circumambulation of the guru granth sahib um and further to that the scriptures say that the karpan obligates a sikh to the ideals of generosity compassion and service to humanity. It acts as a reminder to its bearer of a Sikh's solemn duty to protect the weak and promote justice for all. So that's what, I'm, that's what I meant when you asked me um, 
why like do i have sharp swords and should they be sharp and is that a security risk etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's two aspects to this a like why the short sword should be real and b why the sword should be sharp um so one kind of like um portion of the of the most important aspect of the key that i want to bring up is this verse um that many people know and you i don't know did you watch the movie kesari no i haven't but i heard it's really good it is really good <laughs> it, it is so good it is like the um i would describe it as the punjab like the sick or indian version of 300 and it's a true story oh okay I just like 300 is yeah so it's pretty crazy um so in that the like the main title song is is made of this the chorus of which is this verse which is one of the most important verses in sikhi which is uh deh shiva var mohe hai shubh karm anate kab huna daro so never the end of that line means do not be afraid to do what is right um and that's why it is so important to have a real sword in your wedding like don't take a butter knife there take a real sword feel the weight in your hands feel the sharpness of your sword when you make those vows in front of your friends your family and god and know that the medal represents your willingness to always be ready for doing what's right even if it is more difficult to do and what i what i mean by even if it is more difficult to do is like it is easy to just you know wherever you're getting your outfit or whatever it is to just get one of the or from your you know decor person just get one of the fake butter knives that they have just because it kind of completes the thing but it and, and it is more difficult to you know search up a real sword kind of thing in surrey where do i get it which one do i buy which one do i rent etc but if you keep all this in mind then you're essentially like setting this proper foundation of your mindset for the ceremony itself Yeah, I um, um I was going to say I uh cuz I'm doing preparation well as best as I can for like my own wedding uh-huh. which will be next year. Okay. And I have Congrats. Thank you. I have been <laughs> uh quite passive. Um you know cuz I'm thinking okay I just need to get my what I want to wear for a ceremony and I'll just get a sword from somewhere and I don't know what I'm going to do with the turban. Very kind of passive and I think we'll touch right. on towards the end of this episode your views on how you think the involvement of grooms in how they choose to present themselves on their wedding day is going to evolve but yeah keep going i i, I didn't mean to interrupt no no for sure yeah um i was actually getting to that point of of how the groom should be involved in this process so that kind of ties into it like it's not it's it there is the fashion aspect of it and people may think that oh this is just the fashion aspect of it that you know i you know that i should be involved in how i uh, you know i'm going to look and that i should look like this or look like that or that you know i should spend x amount or you know be at x amount uh, invested into how i look um but at the end of the day like if as is the same thing with how with the clothes that we wear every day in our life they affect how we feel and how we carry ourselves and the mindset that we get into so like people who you know have customer facing jobs 
you know the difference of if you wear t-shirt and shorts to go meet a customer than when you or, or to a business meeting or you know to whatever it is as opposed to when you wear a suit like you feel that and when you walk out of the house when you look at yourself in the mirror you feel that confidence and you understand what it means to carry yourself in what you are wearing right like if you're walking down the street and even just walking down the street in t-shirt and shorts then the way you carry yourself will be much more kind of like free going relaxed you know what doing whatever comes to your mind kind of thing but if you're dressed up to the t then you think twice about how you're carrying yourself how you're presenting yourself what it is that you're doing your posture everything like you you all of a sudden become more conscious of who you are as a person in that moment and to ignore the importance of how you look on your wedding day is to ignore the feeling of who you are as a person on that day to be forced to be conscious of this is who i am and this is what i want to be and even if you don't want to take that stuff into consideration at least have the respect for the ceremony itself which for all of us regardless of our you know for most of us regardless of our faith whether it be hindu uh muslim christian or sikh it's going to be a religious or spiritual experience and so like i said it's really important to take that extra step to be mindful of everything that you are doing to get to that altar and what you are going to be doing on that altar and all these things including your outfit your turban your sword your shoes you know your haircut whatever it is all these things contribute to where your mind is at on that day because that day is going to be one of the most important days of your life agreed right yeah and um i kind of i'm i know i'm kind of backpedaling but going back to that that story i don't know if it was from a memoir or something you mentioned it was published in 1930 and then i heard a reference to the 90s it was at the 1890s or the 1990s i just want to double check oh no 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 it was it took place in the 1930s 19 oh okay 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 yeah. Yeah, okay, okay, got it. Yeah. And I think just to kind of reiterate what you're getting at, I think, is while that story is about uh, a journey of seven miles, you got to remember people weren't like driving cars or motorcycles, either, you know, and they're obviously carrying somebody, multiple yeah. people, and it's a walk. So, right. you know, a few hours, depending on the season, uh, could be hard, harder than usual. So, um, you know, there is real context there. I don't know if everybody is aware of that and if they're really thinking through that, uh, like grooms in particular, when they um, kind of choose what they, how they want to look and right. feel on the big day. Yeah. Um, as we kind of wrap up, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts real quickly on um, how you think the future of grooms fashion is going to change. And then... Um, yeah, and then, and then kind of have some closing, uh, closing points. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the future of Grimm's fashion, basically, 
what we are in right now is a revival movement. So the likes of uh, Sanjay Leela Bansali, for example, who is the uh, creator of um, Ram Leela, Padmavat, um, and Baji Ramastani, etc. Uh, Jodha Akbar, that happened in 2006. Um, and now all of the, basically, like, social media has propelled um, the main designers of India as well, who are also bringing it back to the roots. And that the roots of our culture and the richness of our heritage is in um, the basically the pre-British era where we took real pride in the way that it was that we chose to dress in the way that is in our culture. And so that is now kind of being brought back to light by it being uh, quote unquote cool because you know celebrities are also um, adopting that um, and uh, all the big designers are adopting it and it's coming out in social media which is being spread all over the world so people who didn't know you know x and y designer who's the biggest designer in mumbai in india because you know usually you'd have to walk into that shop to understand um you know what what it is that they're doing or you know know somebody or whatever it is now everybody can see this is the work and this is what looks good and this is how you want to experience it what we're in um what we have been in, in, you know, in the last, for our, I don't know when it started, for however many years, but is basically this consumer-driven uh, wedding industry, basically. Like, the way uh, the weddings are being planned these days are more so on how can we one-up the last wedding that we went to, or the biggest wedding that we went to kind of thing. Um, the actual traditions are being taken out of it. It's actually kind of a mini rant here on that. But um, uh, like, for example, you know, these kinds of shortcuts on the uh, traditional aspects, such as the sword and stuff like that, that people are taking. Um, but now they're understanding that you can accomplish both things. Like you can have a big grand wedding that doesn't look like the wedding of you know north america that you know there's um you know x amount of glitter glamour mirrors crystals etc etc like you can shift it more towards this traditional indian look that is becoming more and more luxurious and extravagant and it is the one day that you get to do that that's the that's the main thing. It's literally the one day that you can experience that you are not a king per se, but a Maharaja, even further up, like in your cultural heritage. Because you can throw a party anytime you turn forty, throw this big party with you know in a ballroom with whatever different decorations and dance floor and it's all these other things. But the way you dress and the decor that you have can be influenced now because of changing um, norms and kind of, how do I say, trends to move more towards that experience. 
You get what I'm saying? I do. I do. That does make yeah. sense. Yeah. Okay. So um, I do have a kind of a closing point. Um, in terms of like, I'm also asking from out of my personal interest mm-hmm. to be to be transparent. So like, what is the price range for like renting versus buying like swords from you? Okay, so swords. Oh, I didn't actually go into the details of the swords themselves. So the swords that we have, they're um, traditionally they're traditionally handmade, authentic, like fully handmade swords. There's forged from numerous metals um, with so many different designs, shapes, and sizes. Um, you, you know, you can get blades of iron, high-tempered steel, uh, the famous Damascus steel, also known as woots. Um, the adornments can have uh, koftgari, which is wire work, um, which is really cool. Actually, if you look at um, on our Instagram page um, at Maharaja Turban and take a look at our swords, you can see the level of details that goes into it. Like when you see wire work, it's literally like the um, you know the blacksmith will sit there with this um, like. Uh, if you try to imagine soldering wire, like super thin soldering wire made of 24 karat gold or pure silver, either one. Um, and so they sit there and let literally etch the wire into these intricate designs all throughout the sword, the blade, whatever it is. Um, the blade itself can be meticulously worked with that in gold and silver. You know, have, we can have your name written on it. Um, the date, whatever, and and uh, that's something that a lot of people are interested in. They get, you know, buy a sword, knowing that it can last forever, um, pass it down as generation to generation, and as you go with each generation, inscribe their names into the blade and the date of their marriage, and so the you know the sword itself becomes kind of this memorabilia, and it's like a cultural heritage of the family. Um, you know, that gets put up on the wall while it's not in use because uh, obviously it makes a really beautiful piece of art because that's what they are. And so um, all that kind of goes into it and then, you know, shipping and, and custom design, et cetera, et cetera. So renting uh, what some people prefer to do because they're not so, you know, interested in owning for whatever reasons uh, ranges from like 150 to 350 Um depending on the sword and then for buying any ranges anywhere from you know 600 to and could go up to 3000 i have you know a design for a sword that i can get uh that's actually a ten thousand dollar sword because it just uses so much 24 karat gold uh to make the basically the entire like a lot of gold goes into it um so you know it can range anywhere but we can work with you to design anything that you want essentially but um and make it a truly unique piece and it really adds to like just like i said in the last um podcast like with the uh turbans like they really add the hand tied turban really adds this depth to the pictures and videos like you may think oh okay well you know it's like you know 500 or just a thousand dollars whatever it is i don't know if i'm willing to spend that kind of money but you know you're spending 10 15 thousand at least on your uh, photography and videography and then you know you're walking around with this ready-made turban and a butter knife and the ten fifteen thousand dollars basically down the drain because you kind of look like a doofus <laughs> whereas you know you could have spent a little bit more on something that is an, an appreciating asset actually um because 
it's art you know it's it's never gonna go out of style and it's gonna last forever and you can resell it if you need to and it's gonna last generations if you need it to and so you know the sky's the limit that's awesome and I, yeah. you know this is a what you do is i think very it, it's it's sensatory in nature in the sense that you want to see it, you want to feel it. And I know that this is yeah. a very audible experience, this podcast. What are the best ways for people to, one, reach out to you, but also see your work? Um, they can go to our Instagram page is the best place to see pictures. Um, and that's at Maharaja Turban. Um, and, then you can e- and then you can email us at maharajaturban at gmail.com. Um, and of course, if you are local to Vancouver, um, or even as far as Seattle, like you can come in, um, and see and feel the sorts here. And I can explain to you, you know, the full process there. And if you're, you know, not local, then, you know, we can do the whole thing, uh, over the phone, over email, FaceTime, whatever else, you know, like we're here to make it work however you want. Awesome. Do you have any uh, last points you want to get out before we close this up? Um, yeah, I guess just to kind of reiterate, like, one thing that I think is kind of lacking um, in this environment that we're in is to shift is overall for weddings um, is to shift, try to shift away from this mindset of um, like selfishness. Uh, which is a lot of which is what a lot of weddings these days are becoming like to try to you know spend et cetera amount to one up or like to you know I want this because it looks better and I don't want to you know go through the cultural aspect of this because it it's not or the religious aspect of it because it doesn't appeal to me um, like one thing for example that uh, that really grinds my gears is that traditionally all the money especially in an anankaraj that's received in the ceremony in the engagement or the wedding is meant to be used 100% for charity work. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, because seva is such an important tenet of sikhi, sikhi. So nowadays, many people don't follow that and instead choose to keep the money or use it towards an ultra-elaborate reception, you know, which is not actually necessary. It's just a way of showing off. Um, you know, to the community that, you know, oh, I had 600 people at my wedding and, or at my reception and wedding and I had, you know, these 20 dishes and these 50 types of alcohol and stuff. But I'm not saying, I'm not saying be black and white. Like, I'm not saying either be super selfish or, you know, have your wedding in City Hall and donate all the money to, you know, whatever charity and stuff. Like, everybody is a shade of gray. But what I'm saying is you don't have to choose to be all black and white. You shouldn't think that, oh, well, because we're breaking this tradition, we should break X, Y, Z traditions as well. No, like you may want to serve alcohol and meat at your wedding, but, you know, choose to give all the money that you got away for charity work. And that makes you a better person than if you did neither. Of course, try to do both, but I don't don't expect anyone to change overnight, but use it as a first step. Become a better person throughout your life like religion doesn't have to govern that but this is your marriage ceremony which is the foundation stone for the rest of your life do not treat it lightly think about it in that way and 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 really commit to that wedding day 
as you commit to your life. It should be a reflection of who you are as a person. Your wedding day should be a reflection of who you are as a person, not what society wants you to do. Yeah, I, I agree. It should be authentic to you and representative of what you believe in, your values and so on, not what other people are expecting you to do. Exactly. Like, has become this big, you know, issue, right? I don't know if yeah. you're familiar with that phrase. Do you watch Hasan Minaj's show? Oh, I've, I've, I've seen like one or two. I, yeah. I've, I've, been, I've been binging so many other Netflix and oh, Amazon sorry, Prime. Not, not, not the show, um, his stand-up. His yeah, stand-up yeah, no, no. no. I, I, uh, I've, yeah. Um, I've, I, I haven't in a while because I've been binging a bunch of other like Netflix and Prime shows right. that I've, everything's starting to blur together, including like storylines and actors and casts and all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, awesome, man. Well, um, thank you for your time. Really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. You too. I'll uh, send you a link with uh, uh, this episode. And then for those listening, um, Hari mentioned his uh, company's email address and Instagram handle. I'll be dropping that in the description. Thank you all. Have a good night. Thanks. Bye.